Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Meredith Fowley, Associate Professor in the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics at UC Berkeley and Faculty Director of the Energy Institute at Haas. Along with her co-authors, Meredith recently published a working paper on the causes and implications of high electricity prices in the state of California. These high prices not only burden low-income households, they also pose a hurdle to reducing emissions by electrifying transportation, heating, and other sectors. In today's episode, Meredith will describe proposals for reforming electricity pricing in California to address this complex and evolving challenge. Stay with us. Okay, Meredith Fowley from the University of California at Berkeley. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thanks for having me. So Meredith, today we're going to talk about a new working paper that you have out with a couple of colleagues called Designing Electricity Rates for an Equitable Energy Transition. But before we talk about the paper and the topics that surround it, can you uh, tell us how you ended up working on environmental issues? Sure. I mean, I think it started at summer camp. Um, So I grew up in Toronto, which is a really big city, but I was fortunate to spend my summers at camp, Um, and this was a pretty old school camp, so we would take these long canoe trips through Algonquin Park and Tomogamy, and this was my happy place, but it was also like the late 1980s, early 90s, so the impacts of acid rain were pretty hard to ignore, Um, so we were canoeing through these lakes with dying trees. And this had a pretty profound impact on me. Um, so I wanted to learn more about the problem and learned that we pretty much understood what the problem was. And we even had some ideas as to how we could solve it, but the problem was still there. And so I think that's when I started getting interested not only in sort of environmental issues, but environmental economics, because I was sort of understanding that you can understand the problem and you can even have the technologies to solve it. But if you don't have the incentives to use those solutions, you still have a problem. So it all went back to lakes in Ontario. Wow, that's so cool. And did you end up studying environmental science or economics or something like that when you went to undergrad? Yeah, well, I I went to Cornell and I went to do ecology because I thought I was still thinking that it was just we had to just better understand the problem. And then I stumbled into an environmental economics class taught by Dwayne Chapman. And like one of his opening lectures, he talked about the acid rain program, and I was completely taken. So I spent a lot of time in Dwayne Chapman's office. Yeah, that's great. Well, um, so as I said, today we're going to talk about uh, a recent paper that you have with colleagues on electricity pricing. And I, I think it'll be useful to start off with some very basic background material, which will actually uh, be useful for me in my day-to-day life. Um, So we all pay electricity bills on a monthly basis, but I have to admit, I I, like never look at them myself. Um, Most people probably don't look at them very closely. Um, It's kind of a privilege to be able to do that, frankly, but but that is a reality for me and, and maybe for some of the other listeners of the show. Can you start off by describing to us just in general terms, like what are we paying for when we pay an electricity bill? Sure. And I'll start by admitting that I study this stuff and I don't look at my electricity bills very often. (laughs) Like you said, it's a privilege and ours is a direct billing. So they just take it out of our bank account and I rarely notice. Um, I think one reason we don't pay close attention to what we're paying for every month is because they're so complicated to unpack, right? So when you drive up to the gas pump, 
the price is there on a big sign, but when you open your bill, it's just a mess of tables and figures and formulas. Um, so it's complicated. Uh, and the other thing, I guess, is that the units aren't super intuitive, right? So you think about the dishwasher loads you run, or in my case, uh, the miles I drive, uh, but not. it's hard to map those into kilowatt hours. So like when you think about a kilowatt hour, my dishwasher consumes about a kilowatt hour, my Chevy Bolt consumes about 29 kilowatt hours for 100 miles. So that sort of puts at least into perspective what we're even talking about. But most bills, uh, when you sort of pick through those tables and charts, they can be broken down into two parts. So one's the cost per kilowatt hour, and then you've got sometimes some fixed charges that don't depend on how much you consume every month. So in terms of price per kilowatt hour, depending on your utility, many utilities have staircases, which means the price you pay for the next kilowatt hour depends on how much you've consumed in that month. Um, so you can see why it gets complicated quickly, because depending on where you live, what your staircase looks like, and how much you pay in per kilowatt hour um, prices versus fixed charges really varies. But those are the sort of the key, that's the lay of the land when it comes to that complicated bill you get every month. Great. And we're going to talk about some of those fixed charges in particular, but maybe just to ground listeners, can you can you help us understand what those fixed charges are paying for? Like what are the kind of physical assets they're paying for? Yeah, well, it turns out that, <laughs> so here in California, as we'll talk about, we don't pay much fixed charges at all. So, but I think the key that you're getting at, which is going to be really central to this work that we're doing, is that when we consume electricity, there's some costs that you, like when I run my dishwasher, electricity needs to be generated. So there's cost of the fuel that's consumed. If it's a fossil fuel, there's cost of the emissions that are released. If I'm running my dishwasher load on at peak time, which I shouldn't be, but suppose I do, maybe there's like a little bit of investment we had to make in transmission or generation to make sure that there was supply when I demanded it. So there are those, those incremental costs that really depend on how much you're using at a given time. But then there's a lot of fixed costs in the electricity sector from big power plants that we're building or transmission infrastructure. So those costs don't depend on how much we're consuming at any given time, but they're costs that we do recover in our rates. So what really varies across, like depending on what utility you purchase from and where you live is how much of those costs are, are recovered from you in a per kilowatt hour rate and how much of those costs are recovered in just a fixed charge that you pay every month, regardless of how much you consume in that month. That is super useful. Thank you so much. Um, so let's dig now into the specifics of your recent work. And um, the paper that we're going to talk about is really focused on California. And one thing that some listeners might know is that uh, California's electricity prices on average are higher than the national average. So can you start us off just with some basic reasons for why that is? I can, but first I want to make sure I'm uh, clear that this is a team effort uh, with my excellent colleague Severin Bornstein and Jim Salee. So when I say we, that's who I'm referring to. Um, so California retail prices are high and they're increasingly out of line with the rest of the country. And that's really the point of departure for this paper. What got us thinking about this was just trying to figure out why they're so high and rising. Um, and I should mention that we're focusing on this exactly where you started this conversation. So the residential electricity prices, so what households are paying on their bills. And we're also focusing on investor-owned utilities who supply most of the electricity in the state. So the key reason that California per kilowatt hour prices are high or is what we've just been talking about, which is we recover almost all of the costs in those per kilowatt hour rates. We don't pay much of a fixed charge at all. We're paying these costs on a per kilowatt hour 
basis. And so what are these costs? <laughs> so they are infrastructure costs, so transmission and distribution and, and power plants. They're public programs like energy efficiency programs and subsidies for rooftop solar. So there's a lot of costs we incur and increasingly going forward, it's wildfire mitigation costs, right? So it's basically climate change adaptation that we're having to do in terms of vegetation management and grid hardening. So a lot of different costs are showing up in those per kilowatt hour rates. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and hopefully we'll have time to come back to that wildfire question in particular. It's a big one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, there are some pretty obvious reasons why high electricity prices are not desirable. Um, the negative economic impacts, particularly for low income households. Um, you also highlight another really important downside of high electricity prices, which is that they could discourage the electrification of other parts of the economy. So you mentioned your Chevy Bolt. If you're paying high electricity prices for your Bolt, people might not buy Bolts and they might buy some other uh, vehicle that is more emissions intensive. Um, can you just talk us through both of those major downsides to the high electricity prices? Yes, I would be happy to. Um, but I do think I want to plug another one of your podcasts that I think you did recently, uh, because I think maybe depending on where in the country your listeners live, um, some might be thinking it's not so obvious that electricity prices are too high. Right? Because if conventional electricity production generates harmful emissions, you might think that we should actually be raising electricity prices to incentivize energy efficiency investments and conservation and things like that. So before getting into the, you know, why prices are too high, I just want to underscore the fact that, um, and, and promote some work by Severin Bornstein and, and Jim Bushnell, because they've been looking across the country to ask the question, you know, are electricity prices too high? So they compare electricity prices paid by consumers to the marginal social cost. That cost I was talking about earlier with my dishwasher, sort of the fuel costs and the emissions costs. And they do find that right now a majority of Americans pay electricity prices that are above marginal social cost. And to give you a sense of how far above, I'm gonna come back to our paper. So for example, in my utility, uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, which is the largest utility in the country, we estimate the social marginal costs. So like I turn on my lights and what is the cost incurred by society all in, including the greenhouse gas costs. And we estimate a social marginal cost of about eight cents. Customers in like me pay about 25, 26 cents. So that's a big gap between what it's costing to consume that electricity and what we're paying. So getting back to your question, there's two reasons we should be losing sleep over that gap that's only going to get bigger if we don't change course. One, uh, as you hinted at, was is sort of affordability equity related. So what we're doing here is we're taxing electricity consumption, right? We're raising revenues by pushing electricity prices higher than the true cost. And it turns out that that's a really regressive way to raise revenues more regressive than consumption taxes and income taxes and gas taxes because low-income households spend a disproportionate share of their sort of annual or monthly expenditures on electricity. And increasingly, we're finding that high-income customers don't consume much more than low-income customers. So it's loading uh, a burden on households who are struggling to pay. So that's the first reason to be concerned about these high electricity prices. And the second, which you talked about, um, is that I think there's there's emerging consensus that the most promising path to deep decarbonization runs through the power sector. 
So the basic idea is to decarbonize the grid and electrify all sorts of things, from the car in my driveway to the water heater in my basement to some industrial applications. And so to make that happen, we need people, households and firms, to trade in their gas car for an electric car. But who wants to electrify when prices are so high? So that, that's sort of the two reasons we point to as reasons to be really concerned about these high electricity prices, both the affordability concerns, but also um, we're basically putting a barrier in our most promising path to where we want to get to in terms of decarbonization. Yeah, absolutely. And we've talked on this show before about some of the ways that the federal government tries to address that distributional issue you mentioned about low-income households struggling to afford their electricity bills. Um, but California also has programs to do similar things, which are particularly important given the high electricity prices that you just described. So can you give us just maybe a quick rundown of some of the major policies that do that at the federal level and in the state of California? And also, I know this isn't your area of expertise, but to the extent you can, help us understand what we know about the effectiveness of those programs. Yeah, so like you said, it's not my, uh, I'm not an expert in the span of federal programs we have in place, but we do have a number of programs in place. And, and I will say the list is getting longer as states try to respond to the devastating level of utility debt that's accumulated over the course of the pandemic. Um, I will say, sort of wearing my sort of empirical researcher hat, it can be really hard to evaluate these programs because they're typically rolled out in a way that confounds program evaluation because households that are motivated to participate in these programs are often more need of a, in more need of assistance than those who don't participate. Right. So what we typically try and do and we're trying to ask the question, you know, what impact are these programs having is carefully compare participating households to non-participants, but it can be really hard to know what to make of differences across those two groups. It, is it due to the program participation difference or is it due to these other factors that drove some households to take up the program and others not to? So sort of a shameless plug for a research agenda we have going on right now. We're really trying to work with utilities before we roll out some really innovative programs targeted at helping low-income households afford their electricity bills to try and design and implement these programs in such a way that we can learn what's working and what's not. Because you know these are important programs and we want to target our scarce resources um, effectively. So uh, post-pandemic, uh, California utilities are, for example, um, poised to roll out an arrearage management plan type program, which basically offers to households who do have utility debt the following proposal. If households can pay their bills over the next 12 months, they can um, incrementally reduce the debt that they owe the utility to the point that if they pay the bill consistently over a period of 12 months, that or, that debt gets eliminated. So I think there are some innovative programs being put in place to try and help households um, get back on track and relieve them of some pretty um, large utility debt. I think the most important program we have in place right now is this California Alternative Rates for Energy. I'm trying to define my acronyms. <laughs> That's <laughs> CARE. Um, and so this program is really important. It offers a pretty significant discount on energy prices for low-income households. So for electricity, the discount is 30 to 35% on the price that households pay per kilowatt hour. But the one thing to keep in mind is that using our estimates, remember, retail prices are really high above 
the social marginal cost. So by our estimates, these care customers, these low-income customers, are still paying like twice our estimate of the efficient price that is the social marginal cost. So we're still taxing these low-income households to raise these revenues. So while the program is really important and it does offer a significant subsidy, it's still the case that we're, you know, these households are paying a price that's quite a, far above the social marginal cost. And even with this program, households are still struggling to keep up with their energy bills. So right now in California, arrears now exceed like a billion dollars, which is up from, I think, $400 million pre-pandemic. Wow. So I think, I think you know, this is a fraught conversation. I think a, uh, the question has been posed, why are we using electricity bill assistance to address some of our um, concerns about redistribution and income inequality? Um, it's clear that these bills are, or struggles to pay bills are a symptom of deeper problems. But I, I think what our paper tries to advance is this observation that we are taxing electricity. This is a really regressive tax. And we should be looking for alternative ways to raise needed revenues. Yeah. And, and so let's transition now to, you know, we've sort of been describing the problem, if you will, over the last few minutes. You and your co-authors propose some alternatives uh, to the policies that are currently in place or maybe some additions to the policies that are in place uh, to address this issue of high electricity prices. Um, can you just kind of lay out for us what some of those proposals are? Yeah, thanks. So I think one solution uh, would be to move some of these costs that we're loading into electricity prices on to a different tax base, right? So if you think about it, this is an example from Severin, my co-author, who's always good at thinking of really illustrative examples. If you cut down a tree next to a power line, you're paying for it with electricity bills, right? You're putting that cost into rates because it's the utility that's responsible for cutting down that tree. If you're cutting down a tree also to manage wildfire risk, but it's far from a power line, you're, you know, Cal Fire, then that cost gets put on the state budget. <laughs> so I, just some of the costs we're putting into electricity rates are for things like climate change adaptation. So I think we should be asking the question, why are we putting these costs in the electricity bills, given the equity and the efficiency implications of doing so? So one solution would be to move some of these costs out of electricity rates. Um, but raising these kinds of taxes, so you know, a carbon tax or an income tax or a gas tax would be less regressive than the electricity tax, but raising these taxes can be a heavy political lift. And I think that's why we see some of these costs put into electricity rates. So what we did was also think about, okay, um, suppose we can't raise other taxes. <laughs> we still need to raise these revenues from electricity customers. Is there a better way to do that? And so we said it, we're economists. So we said, well, the first step is to get these prices right, the price per kilowatt hour. So let's say we set the electricity price per kilowatt hour equal to our best estimate of what it costs society, so the social marginal cost. But if we do that, then the prices are quite a bit lower. So we have all these other revenues that we still need to recover. So then we thought about, okay, well, how can we do it more fairly than we do it right now? And we also had to think about some sort of various administrative and legal constraints that are going to limit our choice set. But what we basically proposed is like, this was a, let's get the conversation started. This wasn't a, this point of departure, not perhaps a final resting place, is to recover the remaining revenues that we need to recover in um, income-based fixed charges. So the idea would be to um, have a what we propose, but there are many ways you could do this, is have income categories. And as you step up in income, you pay a larger fixed charge. To put this in like 
perspective in my territory, if we set the rate equal to our social marginal cost estimate, we'd have a cost recovery gap of over $4 billion. So we would need to spread that out over the residential customers. Um, if we spread it out equally, that would be about $75 per month. But if instead we said, okay, the lowest income category is going to pay no fixed charge, those customers will just pay the social marginal cost per kilowatt hour, then the highest income category would pay a monthly charge of about $150 per month, which sounds like a lot, but remember, we're paying lower per kilowatt hour rates, right? So the monthly bills of those high income customers would increase by much less, maybe $50 on average, but we are shifting that fixed cost recovery burden onto households who are in a better position to pay it. Right. That's so interesting. And so it's kind of analogous to just like marginal income tax rates for higher income earners. So I should have mentioned, so the my little example that I just talked about, we made that staircase sort of commensurate with the progressivity of the sales tax. If we made it commensurate with the progressivity of the income tax, that last step would be much higher. So you can do it in any number of ways. We were just trying to think through how one could do it and what that would imply for sort of the cost burden across across households. Right. And one of the really nice things about the this this concept is that, as you say, people are still paying the marginal cost for the actual electricity they consume. So it doesn't like distort behavior in ways that we might not want. That's right. That's right. And I don't know if time permits, but I do want to, I wanted to flag one important way that the current rate structure has been distorting behavior. Um, and it's one that's fairly controversial at the moment in California. And that is that, you know, when you're a high income customer, I'm fortunate enough to be in this category, and you're paying really high electricity prices, 25 cents, 26 cents, in San Diego, 30 cents, you've got an outside option, and that is to invest in solar panels on your roof. So we put solar panels on our roof because our electricity rates were really high. And so what that means is when I'm producing electricity right now, it's powering my laptop as I speak to you, and that means I'm avoiding paying that 25 cents, right? But the cost we're actually avoiding is closer to $0.08. Cents. And so what this has meant is that as more and more households adopt solar panels, that shifts the fixed cost recovery onto the households that don't have solar panels and the households that consume more of their electricity from the grid. And because solar panels have been adopted on average by wealthier homeowners, there are equity implications of that cost shift. So it does get complicated quickly when you have, as you mentioned, these high prices that distort choices on intensive and extensive margins. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I can't resist, uh, but I have a new tool that I have started using here on the podcast, which is the acronym <laughs> bell. And it goes oh, like no, this. Oh, no, I thought I had it. <laughs> so, so it wasn't actually an acronym, but you said uh, intensive and extensive oh, margins, yeah, so which I think are non-economists. Yep, yep, fair enough. <laughs> they fair probably enough. won't get it. So could you uh, just quickly explain for us what those terms mean? Yeah. So I, what I should have said, you know, when, when I see my high, high electricity bill, I might use electricity less intensively, right? I might run around and turn off lights and tell my daughter to have shorter hot showers so our electric water heater isn't working so hard. Um, or I can change my like investment decisions, such as the solar panels I put on my roof um, in response, or I will be less likely to adopt an electric water heater because my prices are so high. So both in terms of yes. Thank you for keeping me honest. <laughs> sure thing. And uh, so listeners might be hearing this a little more often uh, now on the show, but it's my child's xylophone. That I have taken as the acronym Bell. In any case, um, back to one more question 
um, before we go to our final top of the stack segment that we alluded to a little bit earlier in the conversation and that you've brought up a couple times already, which is the role of wildfires. So we've done several episodes here on the podcast about wildfires in California and the connection with the electricity system. What do you and your co-authors suggest on this really challenging issue of addressing wildfire risk uh, while uh, still trying to maintain reasonable electric rates in California? Yeah, so this is a really great question. And really, the main thing we suggested in our report, which I should have mentioned, is the first sort of chapter in a longer research agenda. And our suggestion or our plea was for better data. Because <laughs> when we set out to answer this question, we realized it was really hard for us to disentangle. Um, so, for example, we know what utilities are spending on transmission infrastructure or distribution system infrastructure, but what's hard to disentangle is which of those investments are made for wildfire risk mitigation and which are just made for improving and, and um, sustaining the system. And I do think it's going to be important to, to disentangle those pieces. Um, I'm wary of the of the xylophone. I will define this acronym. <laughs> the California Public Utility Commission or the CPUC is also looking very carefully into this, um, and they are starting to collect the data we'll need to divide these costs into wildfire category and other. And I think what they conclude is that um, wildfire costs probably haven't hit the rates too hard just yet, but they are coming into the rate base as utilities make these investments in you know, vegetation management and system hardening, and they project pretty significant impacts on monthly bills by 2030. I think the baseline scenario was like three cents per kilowatt hour in 2030. So that's a pretty significant increase. And so I think what we, um, where we're heading with this is the, to ask the question, should we be paying these costs on electricity bills? I think many of them boil down to climate change mitigation and adaptation investments. We don't pay for you know, flood walls in water rates. Should we be paying for vegetation management and electricity rates, particularly given the affordability concerns and the extent to which that could slow progress and electrification? But I should say this is preliminary work because we just don't have the data we need just yet, although the California Public Utility Commission is working to improve that situation going forward. Yeah, that's so interesting and sounds like a good episode for a future podcast, actually, uh, as, yeah, <laughs> once the data are available and you're able to do some analysis, because it's the sort of thing that, you know, we're going to see around the country, right, in a variety Certainly of Certainly Pacific Northwest, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, uh, Meredith, this has been so interesting, um, really fascinating work uh, with you and Severin Bornstein and Jim uh, Salee. We really appreciate you coming on the show. And we'll close it out now with our regular top of the stack question, which is uh, asking you to recommend something that's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack that can be related, uh, even if tangentially, to the environment. And I'll start with uh, an article that I read uh, a few weeks ago now that I still think about uh, almost every day when I see birds flying overhead, which is um, this article in The New Yorker called Why Animals Don't Get Lost. It's from the April 5th issue of The New Yorker, written by Catherine Schultz, who's a really great science writer. Uh, and it's all about uh, animal migration uh, and the sort of internal compasses that animals have and the different theories for why they're so incredibly good at getting to where they want to go over these vast distances of often thousands and thousands of miles. Um, and it really just, for me, it's made me appreciate looking up and seeing birds flying overhead and wondering how on earth they're 
so good at getting to where they want to go uh, and then back again each year when they migrate uh, from north to south. Uh, and it's just written wonderfully, as most New Yorker articles are. So why animals don't get lost uh, is really fun. There's a great story about a cat that starts it off, and then a lot of the rest of the article is about birds. Um, but how about you, Meredith? What's on the top of your stack? Great. Well, why animals don't get lost is now on the top of my summer reading list. Um, <laughs> so I guess I think probably some of your listeners are in the same boat as I am. I've had two elementary school kids doing school in the living room for the past 14 months. So not much time for reading unless it's Percy Jackson. Um, <laughs> but I am listening to some great podcasts. I've really come to rely on podcasts when I walk the dog or make dinner. So of course, this podcast is a favorite. I really appreciate you at RFF putting this together. Um, Thank it's, you. It's just such a, it's always, always super insightful. But the other ones I have been listening to recently, so Dave Roberts, Volt's podcast, wonky, but amazing. So I'm listening to his deep dive into battery storage. And the other one that I've really, I'm going to make my kids listen to it on the next uh, road trip there's one called Timber Wars from Oregon Public Radio, and it digs into the history and politics of old growth forests, and it's really worth a listen. So those are the two podcasts on my um, listening list these days. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I really enjoy both of those. And Timber Wars, especially for people interested in like socioeconomic impacts of energy transitions, there are yes. all these really yes. fascinating analogies. Yep, really great. Yeah, great. So Meredith Valley from uh, UC Berkeley, uh, thank you again so much for joining us on the show for all the work you do because you know we've only touched on a small subset of your fascinating work. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on and helping us understand this issue of electricity prices in California. We really appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate you having me and giving me the opportunity to talk about this and for making these podcasts available. Really important and, and always a great listen. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.